but have you ever noticed how with each passing year, the evaluation is that this is the most wicked, the most harsh, the most crime-filled, the most unjust year yet. I mean, just, just think of the past few years. Each year had its moments where you thought things cannot possibly get worse than this. In 2020, it was the start of the pandemic. In 2021, right at the beginning of the year, it was the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. By the middle of that year, it was the horrific murder of George Floyd. This year, so far, in 2022, it's been the mass murders that seem to make headlines every week. Shootings at supermarkets, and at schools, and in sanctuaries. And seemingly with each evil act, in each evil age comes the evaluation, this year is the worst ever. <laughs> and with those evaluations often come interrogation. <clears throat> Why? Why is all this happening? And where is God in the midst of all this madness? <clears throat> the atheist says there is no God. The horrible state of the world, proof that he does not exist. The agnostic says that there's not enough proof, one way or another, to make any firm claims about God. Maybe he's real in all this, and maybe he isn't. The hedonist makes partying or promiscuity, pills or pot or PlayStation his God seeking to drown out the realities of existence in a painful world with persistent pleasure. The fatalist feels that things will just be what they will be. The outcome of all things already irreversibly set. And so he has a kind of stoic, emotionless response to current circumstances. But what does the Christian do? We live in the same world as everyone else. We see the same chaos and killing and corruption as everyone else. How do we process it? And what kind of questions should we ask? Is it wrong for us to ask why? Is it faithless for us to ask where is God? The book we'll study this morning, Habakkuk, helps us think through these things as Christians, even though it's written by a man who is not a Christian. The prophet, prophet Habakkuk lived and wrote about 700 years before Christ came into the world, 700 years before the eternal Son of God, Jesus, took on flesh and became a man. But Habakkuk believed in the covenant God who promised to send the Savior. He believed God's promises of salvation. And so as a member of God's covenant people, he can instruct us more than 2,000 years later as the covenant people of God how to live in sinful times. Right. Habakkuk lived in the land of Judah in the 7th century B.C. Among the chosen people of God, the, the people of Israel. But they weren't acting like God's chosen people. And as Habakkuk observed the rampant sinfulness among his own people and the even more deplorable behavior and actions of the nations around him, he wondered aloud, why is God allowing all this? Why is he not ending all this evil? But as we study this book together, we'll see Habakkuk's faith mature and deepen as he learns and means to teach us that God works in mysterious ways. Ways that seem sometimes out of place, ways that seem sometimes strange, ways that seem sometimes even wrong to us. But ways that always mean to shine a bright spotlight, even in the darkest of times, to God's character Amen. and God's care and God's glory and the ways that call us to trust in him. 
so here's what I think is the main idea of the book of Habakkuk that we'll study this morning. The main idea of the sermon. And for your convenience, I've actually printed it in the bulletin this week. We must learn to trust the Lord's purposes, not our perceptions. He is always at work, judging the wicked, saving the righteous, and bringing glory to his name. We must learn to trust the Lord's purposes, not our perceptions. That is, we must learn to live by faith, not by sight, not by what we see. God is always at work judging the wicked and saving the righteous and in it all bringing glory to his name. As we walk through Habakkuk, a book that, that features a good deal of dialogue between the prophet, prophet Habakkuk and, and God. A book that features a good number of questions. We'll hang our thoughts around three questions that the people of God must wrestle with in every single age. And those will be the three points of the sermon. Number one, why is God sitting back and allowing so much evil and injustice? Why is God just sitting back allowing so much evil and injustice? Question number two, what will God do for his people? What will God do for his people? And question number three, what should I do right now? All right. Number three, what should I do right now? First question, why is God sitting back and allowing so much evil and injustice? Look with me at Habakkuk chapter one. We'll focus on the first four verses to start with. We read the, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. We see something of the atmosphere, of the climate in which Habakkuk lives and serves in verses 3 and 4. As he laments destruction and, and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, the law is paralyzed, justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous and justice goes forth perverted. The land of Judah has become a seedbed of sin, a, a place of chaos and violence, a place that has no room for God and no room for his word. The people of Israel, whom God chose to be his special people, to be in a special relationship with him, to learn and to live by his law, showing the rest of the watching world what it's like to worship and serve the true and living God, have instead watched the rest of the world and sought to worship their gods and live by their laws. And the results have been disastrous. Amen. There's corruption and distrust among the people of Judah. There's destruction. You see, turning your back on God never turns out okay. It never brings life, only death and destruction. The decay of families, of communities, of whole countries like Judah. The people of Judah had God's perfect law. A law that taught them to love both God and neighbor. But that perfect law was perverted in the hands of a polluted people. Against this backdrop, we see that there is at least one who seeks for justice. One who seeks for God's name to be vindicated and his law upheld. Habakkuk, the prophet. But his fight against the wickedness he sees in the world around him is not by wielding swords and spears. And neither is Habakkuk given to politicizing or picketing. Nor is Habakkuk given to cynicism. Or resigned to the mindset that says that this is just the way things are in Judah now. There's no hope for anything better. No, we see that Habakkuk's constant weapon against the worldliness and wickedness in Judah have been his prayers to God. And his astonishment 
is not so much in the evil he sees among God's people. Sadly, this has been the pattern that Israel has exhibited since God chose them. One of constant rebellion. Now, his astonishment is that God has remained silent in responding to such evil, in judging such iniquity. Habakkuk, by his very prayers, highlights certain attributes about God. That he is sovereign, that he is in control of all things, that he is holy, that he is perfect, he is righteous, that he would do right. And so he is baffled by God's seeming indifference to Judah's sin, something that is against his very character. And so we see him in the opening verses crying out to the Lord, how, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. How long will I cry to you violence and you will not save? You can just sense a man who was deeply grieved over the sin of his people. He's been crying out to the Lord over a long period of time for God to act in justice, to judge sin. And yet God is silent. And it drives Habakkuk to ask that old familiar question, why? Why are you allowing this? Look at verse 3. Why do you idly look at wrong? Or as the NIV puts it, why are you tolerating wrong? Why are you just sitting on your hands when there's so much sin in the land? Now, if, if old Habakkuk showed up in our prayer service this evening. We might have a problem with him praying like this. Perhaps someone would quickly follow behind him in prayer trying to correct him. Lord, we know that you are in control of all things. That we should not with our finite understanding question any of your ways, Lord. But you are good and you tell us to just accept things as they are. Or maybe we approach old back in after service and gently rebuke him. You know, brother, I really appreciate your earnestness and in honestness and in passion. But, but you know, the, the Lord is high and lifted up. We need to be careful and, and more respectful in how we address him. But don't Habakkuk's prayers actually set a good model for our praying? A, a zeal for God's name to be vindicated? A zeal for God's word to be upheld? A zeal for sin to be judged? And doesn't Habakkuk himself give us a good model of what God's servant should be? One who doesn't keep, but cast all his burdens and anxieties before the Lord. One who seems to spend more time in private, personal prayer than in public proclamation. I mean, Habakkuk seems to have spent countless hours praying for God to show himself mighty in justice. His how long shall I cry for help is because he's been crying out to God for a long time. His prayer here shows someone not who has lost confidence in God, but one who trusts that God is good and God is just and God is able to deliver. His is a real praying, open, honest, and persistent praying, waiting for God to respond, waiting for God to judge. But God has been silent so far. At least it seems so. There's no reprieve or relief from all the evil the prophet continues to see in Judah. Why, Lord? How long till you answer me? Well, we learn it won't be very long. God does respond to Habakkuk in verse 5. Look there at verse 5. You see a, a, another person speak. It's another kind of conversation partner. This is the Lord. And, and the Lord says in verse 5, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breath of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. 
Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. I notice a few specific words the Lord uses here to directly reply to Habakkuk's complaints. Notice just that first word there in verse 5, where the Lord commands Habakkuk to look. Look. In, in the first part of verse 3, Habakkuk complained that the Lord was continually making him see the iniquity present in Judah. But here in verse 5, God wants to widen the prophet's perception. You're only looking at what's going on in Judah. But look around and be astonished at what's going on at a larger scale. You see, it's always dangerous when we limit God to our limited view. In dark times, we can often only see with a flashlight. We can see clearly one specific area where we're shining the light on. We can see one thing that's going on. But to get God's point of view, we often need a floodlight that allows us to see the wide perspective, the wider perspective, opening our eyes to everything around us. Don't just look among the nation of Judah and figure the Lord is silent. Look among the nations, God says, and be astounded. Why? Because the Lord says, I am doing a work in your days. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Remember again, back in verse 3, Habakkuk thought that God had just been sitting idly, looking at wrong, inactive as injustice and violence persisted. Not so, says the Lord. While you have been praying, Habakkuk, I have been working. Amen. Friends, God's silence does not equate to inactivity. God is always working. Amen. You remember Jesus in John chapter 5 when he was proving his deity? They were saying, you're working on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am always working as my Father is always working. What you see is not always what's only going on. Mm. God is always working. Here we learn he was behind the scenes. Habakkuk had no clue. He's just looking at what's going on in this little piece of land in Palestine. God says, look at what's going on all around the world. He's orchestrating events, sovereignly putting together a plan to judge Judah for their sins. And he was going to do so in a most unexpected way. And he was going to judge Judah not by some horrific plague, not by sickness, not by death from some supernatural events, but by the hands of a totally foreign and pagan people, the Chaldeans. If you've got a different version of the Bible, they might say the Babylonians here. It's the same group of people. Chaldea is just a place in southern Babylon. So when you read Chaldeans, the same thing as the Babylonians, right? Israel's long enemy who took them into exile. In Habakkuk's time, the, the top headlines from around the world would include news of the slow decline of the formerly powerful Assyrians, who we read about last week in the book of Nahum, and, and the rapid rise and growing domination of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And God tells Habakkuk that that is his hand at work, raising up the Chaldeans, growing them in number and strength, ultimately to act as his instrument of judgment against Judah. You know, I think it shows us that when we think of God's judgments, we ought not just think of final apocalyptic cataclysmic events. Amen. God is also involved in the international affairs of the day. He sets up kings and removes kings. He builds up and tears down empires for his purposes. Friends, 
So consider that bad presidents, dysfunctional governments, invading armies, constant international threats could very well be God's judgment. And so sometimes you hear people say, well, America has sinned like such and such evil nation in the Bible. Why isn't God judging us like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, who says he's not? All right. Bad leadership, corrupt governments, all that is included in parts and forms of God's judgment. God tells uh, Habakkuk, he is doing a work of judgment. Where are you going to look for it from? Not directly from the hand of God through some kind of big cataclysmic event. Look at what I'm going to do through an invading army. Ooh. Hidden hand of God is seen here as behind the, the Chaldean ascension and their coming invasion of Judah. And notice how God just kind of lists off all the Chaldeans' characteristics as he talks about this impending judgment. He tallies up their terror. Verse 6, they are a bitter and hasty nation. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Verse 9, they all come for violence. Verse 10, they laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. God demonstrates his hatred of Judah's sin in choosing the most harsh and cruel enemy on the earth to exact his judgment. He means to highlight how ruthless this nation is in order to display the lens that he will go to judge sin. And again, just notice the similarities here to what we read last week in Nahum. There we read of how dreaded and seemingly unstoppable the Assyrian army was. And here it's the Chaldeans. I think it makes the point that every nation and army seem indestructible when they're on top. But none of them actually are. Amen. These Chaldeans, Babylonians, crushed the Assyrians only for themselves to be one day crushed soon as well. You see, every single kingdom falls except the kingdom of God. Amen. Perhaps Habakkuk here is beginning to feel a sense, a brief sense of relief. I mean, he's finally heard God respond to his cries for justice. Uh, but that relief was quickly replaced with remorse. Uh, this is not what Habakkuk had in mind. Uh, yes, he wanted God to judge sin, but not like this. Not in this way. And so again, he takes up a line of questioning. And his main complaint this time is, how can God use such a wicked and unjust people as the Chaldeans to judge his people, Judah? Look there at verse 13. Habakkuk remarks, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Habakkuk acknowledges God's complete holiness. He cannot endure sin. He cannot look upon sin lightly. He cannot be in fellowship with sin. That's why he kicked Adam and Eve out the garden. That's why he exiles Israel. That's why me and you cannot naturally be with him in heaven. God is holy and we are not, and he is separate from us. Amen. Yeah. Habakkuk acknowledges that. Right? God, God, you're too pure for evil. Well then, how could you possibly use a people who do not know you at all? who do not follow you, who never kept your word, how can you use them to judge your covenant people? I mean, yes, Judah was, was sinful, but at least some of them, like Habakkuk, were still seeking after God. Uh, none of the Chaldeans were. I mean, look up at the end of verse 11. Their own might was their God. Or look up to verse 7. Their justice and dignity, dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they make up their own rules for what's right or wrong. They have no regard for God's law. What law? Or, or drop your eyes down to verse 15. They treat people like animals. 
putting a hook in their captives like fish and dragging them on the ground in their nets. Lord, how can you possibly use them? If the wicked Chaldeans judge Judah's sin, who will judge the Chaldeans' sin? The situation would only get worse. Lord, I cried out to you because of the violence and injustice in Judah. But with the Chaldeans, there is not less, but more violence, more destruction, more strife, more injustice. How can you, a holy God, allow such injustice? How can you sit back and tolerate such sin? And again, Habakkuk waits for response. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaints. And again, God responds. I mean, just notice here the kind of interplay between the people of God and God himself. We cry out and the Lord, the high Lord of heaven, responds to us. Amen. God responds, and, and this is the, the, the main idea of his response. I will not tolerate sin. I will judge all sin in my own time and in my own way. Let's look more closely at the Lord's response here as we, we look at chapter 2, picking up at verse 2. We read, and the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits his appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And then watch as the Lord kind of levies five woes against the Chaldeans. Verse six, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Verse 19, the final woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God promises here in no uncertain terms that he will judge the Chaldeans. All their kind of loud, boisterous talk will be shut up. There will be one God in the end and all the earth will be silent before him. Amen. God will judge the Chaldeans. Though they are his instrument to judge Judah's sins, he will raise up other nations to judge of their sins. And the five woes here serve as five pronouncements of doom sure to come upon them by the hand of God to destroy them for all their evil ways, from seeking to, to build up their empire through injustice or to mistreat people as slaves, 
Also, as we just read, worship and serve wooden and gold and silver idols. God sees it all and will act accordingly. The point is unmistakably clear. God judges all sin. The sins of his people and the sins of the nations. All who live will have to stand before him and give an account for their lives. You see, God does not and will not sit back silently and allow sin to go on and on and on unpunished. Amen. What does that mean for us as a church? That God won't wink at or overlook sin. That he won't allow evil to go unchecked. I think one of the things we see in this passage that we see in other passages in the Old Testament is that sin affects the entire camp, the entire body. I mean, after all, God does not exclude Habakkuk or anyone else from the coming judgment. The wicked in Judah and the righteous whom they surround will all experience the same fate. The entire nation of, of Judah will eventually be exiled and carried off into Babylon. Judah's status as God's covenant people did not exclude them from God's coming judgments. I wonder about us. Do, do we think that our status as church members, our record of attendance, our Faithful giving will somehow cancel out our habitual sinning. Do we think we can hide behind our statuses? Maybe Judah thought that we are God's covenant people. God will never do anything to us. God says, guess what? He will judge. And his judgment on the people's sins wasn't just at an individual level. It caused the whole nation to be judged. The saints, the fact is that our sins, though individual, have communal effects. Your sin, my sin, while chiefly offending God, also affect this body. What you say to your wife and how you speak to your husband and what you do online and how you act at work might seemingly think it's in a quiet. It's just what I do. God judges entire bodies for sin. That's one of the reasons we've covenanted together as members of this church to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, to faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. That's why we vow to do that. That looks different in different relationships in different ways. But, but friends, if we're not helping one another grow in hating sin and trusting Christ, then we're missing one of the main obligations that we have as church members. Amen. One of our primary jobs as church members is to help each other to heaven. And so that means helping each other root out any and everything that might keep us from heaven and instead earn us God's judgment. Someone who knows you who knows your struggles well enough to help you, to keep you from judgment, to keep our church from being judged. Maybe you're here this morning and you had some of the, the same questions as, as Rebecca had. But maybe you've asked them not as an insider, a member of God's community, but as an outsider. You refuse to fully commit to, to God because of all the evil you see. You figure that a good God, if he really is good, would stop rather than allow evil to go unhinged. What I hope you see here that it does not go unhinged. That God's seemingly delayed response is no sign of him being dismissive of evil or diminished in power. Rather, he's waiting to mete out his justice in his time and in his way. And that waiting is meant to lead you to repentance. Sadly, for the people of Judah, God's delay in judgment led them to more and more violence and destruction. Sadly, for the Chaldeans, God's delay in judgment led them to ruthlessly tear through nations and cruelly take advantage of people, thinking there would be no recourse. Don't let God's seeming delay in judgment lead you to more 
and more sin. Friends, with God, we've said this before, justice delayed is never justice denied. Destruction will come upon you for your evil, for your sins, unless you turn to God in repentance. Turn away from your sins. Turn to God for salvation. If you turn today and put your trust in God's son, whom he judged in your place, in the place of all those who believe in him, you will be spared his judgment. Put your trust in Jesus Christ today who lived for you, who died for your sins, who rose from the grave so that you might have eternal salvation and security from the wrath of God. God doesn't look away at evil. He doesn't just sit silent and let sin get a free pass. He will judge it. And that's the answer to the first question to this book of many of our lives even. Why is God sitting back and allowing so much evil and injustice? The answer is he is not. Amen. He's sitting up on his throne at work all the time against evil. And at work all the time for his people. Now, these are the second big question we want to consider in this book. If God will judge evil and evildoers, then number two, what will God do for his people? Question two, what will God do for his people? The answer, save them. Save them. One theologian has, has written against the, the dark backdrop of sin is when the glory of God's grace shines the brightest. But we see something of that reality in our passage. Peeking through the dark, massive clouds of God's judgment, judgment against Judah and judgment against the Chaldeans are the sunbeams of hope seen in God's promise in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Did you catch it when we read through chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 4, the, the righteous will live by his faith. The dark, ominous clouds had to come first to show the brilliant beauty of the sunlight. Judgment and doom had to present it as the terror they were before one could cry out, well, how then can anyone live? Mm -hmm. Then the answer shines brightly. The righteous will live by faith. Amen. And now the fact that there's life to be had at all in the midst of such intense judgment is comforting. But the immediate question must be asked, well, who are the righteous? And how does one become righteous? You see, it's of no comfort or relief to, to learn that there's life to be had, but you can't have it. It's like having a, a deadly disease and learning that there's a cure, but to discover that your health insurance doesn't cover it. And that you don't have enough money to purchase it on your own. It's, it's hopeless. And so, so this promise that the righteous will live by faith only gives hope if we can discover how one can become righteous since it is only they who are promised life. Reading the entire verse of chapter 2, verse 4, gives us a clue. Look back there at chapter 2, verse 4. We read, Behold, his soul. Talking about the wicked here. The wicked's soul is, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And so, we, so we see there's, there's a contrast here. That word but almost always contrasts two things. So there's two kinds of people presented in verse 4. There's one person whose soul is puffed up, who's proud. And then there's another type of person who lives by faith. Faith in something or someone. I mean, faith has to have an object. It's not your faith that's important. It's who your faith is in. And that faith can't be in himself here. Lest this kind of person be characterized as one whose soul is puffed up as well. So a righteous person in verse 4 seems to be describing someone who does not trust in himself. Does not trust in his own might, in his own strength, in his own intellect, in his own abilities, but who trusts in someone else. And we can deduce from the context of this book that someone else seems to be God himself. I mean, that's who Habakkuk keeps praying to the entire book, to, to God. 
That's who he's depending upon. But this is a, a matter of life and death. I mean, the righteous will, will live only by his faith. So, so this is far too important for mere deductions and mere assumptions. Thankfully, the scriptures give us more lights. This text doesn't stand in isolation. We can look forwards and backwards in the scriptures to give us a clearer picture of what exactly this means and how it relates. So, so we look back in the Bible at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In this passage concerning Abraham, we learn that Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith in the Lord and God reckoned it as righteousness. And then if we fast forward to the New Testament, to, to Romans chapter 4, verses 3, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say is gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. That's what this, this person in verse 4 is, the proud boasts, right? If Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So from these two passages, we learn that, that what makes a person righteous is not what he does, but who he trusts in. This declaration of righteousness is not earned, but given. You cannot make yourself righteous. Only God can grant that distinction. Amen. And the poster child in both passages is Abraham. But why? Why Abraham? Well, consider his plight. Remember, God promised to multiply this man's offspring so that they would outnumber the stars in the sky. The only problem was Abraham was an old man. The only problem was Abraham's wife was barren. The only problem was Abraham didn't even have one child, yet alone enough to number the stars in the sky. But as bleak as the situation looked around him, Abraham believed God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. So, so we've seen that a person is declared to be righteous by faith. But the passage that Habakkuk talks about seems to speak not just of a one-time declaration of righteousness by faith, but a continual living by faith. And so there seem to be two ways that the righteous will live by faith. One will be eternally that the righteous will live and not perish based on his standing now as righteous, that he's received as a result of his faith in God, specifically his, his faith in God's son. You see, Abraham believed God and his promises. But the greatest promise God made to Abraham was that one of his seeds would come and bless all the families of the earth. That one of his seeds would come and bring salvation to all the peoples of the earth. That son was God's very own son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect righteous life that neither Abraham nor Adam nor David nor Moses nor you and me have lived. He lived a perfect life. And then he died on the cross. He took our sins on himself and suffered and died. But then he rose again from the grave, demonstrated his, his conquering of death and Satan and hell. And he ascended to heaven on high where he presented his sacrifice to his heavenly father as acceptable. And he calls us all now to turn from our sins and believe on him. And when we do, when we put our faith upon Jesus, his perfect righteousness is transferred to us. And his resurrected life becomes ours. Amen. So that we are regarded righteous in God's sight and granted eternal life in Christ. That's the act of justification where God declares one time and for all time that we are righteous and that we will live forever. But there's another sense in, in which the righteous will live by, by faith. And that's as a lifestyle. All right. You see, this one-time declaration of, of righteous flows into the righteous living by faith in God day by day by day in all circumstances. 
I mean, we look at scriptures again in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, the writer is recounting how these Jewish believers have, have suffered affliction and hardship, have seen their friends imprisoned and had their property plundered for the sake of the gospel. And then he calls them to, to press on to endurance. He says in, in verses 37 and 38, for, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, these believers in Hebrews had been through a lot of suffering and there was more suffering still to come that they must endure. Yet even with such a gloomy outlook, the writer of the Hebrews encourages his readers that the righteous will live by faith. Don't shrink back. Don't resort to other measures. The way to persevere through these trying times is by constantly trusting in, putting your faith in God. That's the only way to live. Amen. Now, now let's go back to our passage in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, and apply this. Habakkuk has been an involuntary witness to his people's prolonged rebellion against God. He has just received the crushing oracle of judgment against his people. That of invasion and conquest and eventual exile at the hands of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. That nation that casts hooks into the lips of its captives and drags them into their nets. The outlook is dreary, fearful even. Certain destruction and much death at the hands of this ruthless enemy. And yet... The Lord's response, his promise is right there. The righteous will live Amen. by faith. Day by day, the righteous will live, not just now, but forevermore. And Habakkuk embraces this promise. As we transition to chapter 3, we see Habakkuk no longer asking questions, but instead offering a hymn of praise to God. He hasn't gotten another word from God a less harsh judgment. He has not received brighter news. Sure, the Chaldeans' destruction has been outlined in chapter 2, but not before they're conquering Judah. They've not yet been defeated and have not altered their course of destruction. In short, nothing about the situation for Habakkuk has changed. The Chaldeans are still coming, and judgment upon Judah is still certain. But Habakkuk has changed. The faith that he exhibited earlier in the book and faithfully crying out to the Lord in prayer has matured to waiting on God and trusting him to save his people even in the midst of judgment. We see it embodied in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, as he reflects on the coming Chaldean invasion. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yes, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk teaches us here that it's okay to not be okay with how things are. I mean, he trembles and quivers at the thought of increasing wickedness and violence. There's something wrong if we're just dispassionately resigned to evil. If abortions and killing in our neighborhoods and abuses in our churches don't move us. There's something wrong if we don't tremble at sin. But Habakkuk also teaches us to wait upon the Lord. All right. Which perhaps is one of the greatest demonstrations of faith. He waits until God brings the judgment he promised upon the Chaldeans and rescues his people. But Habakkuk's ultimate hope is, is not in the Chaldeans' judgment, nor even is it in Judah's return to their homeland. His ultimate hope is in God. He trusts that even in exile, God will be enough. And that leads him to praise. Which the third and final question is the answer to the third and final question we see in this text. What should I do right now? 
What, what should I do right now in the midst of all this wrongdoing, in the midst of all this evil, in the midst of all these kinds of trouble? Answer, praise God. Amen. Praise God. Praise is a curious response to pain, to suffering. Some people promote praise to try to dismiss any notion of pain or suffering. Don't you own that cold? That disease? That disastrous situation? Don't you speak that into existence? The only thing on your lips should be praise to God so that he might prosper you. Friends, that is not a real religion. Amen. That's not what you see anywhere in the Bible. In the scriptures, you see people wrestling through real pain, through real sorrow, being vocal about it. And at the same time, vocally praising the Lord. Amen. And look back at many of the psalmists. Look back at Job, though he slay me, yet... Will I trust him? Yeah. Look at Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's dropping deep tears of sorrow. He's sweating like drops of blood. He is deeply in sorrow, yet he rejoices to do the Father's will and not his own. Amen. See Habakkuk here, recounting the horrors of all the evil in Judah and the horrors that will come to Judah by the Chaldeans, by the Babylonians, and yet praising God. That's basically what chapter 3 is, a hymn of praise to God. Habakkuk recounts time and again how God has powerfully worked to rescue his people in the past. And he asks, Lord, do it again. And he trusts that he will do it again. Amen. Hey, look at chapter 3, verse 2. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you. All right. God keeps a testimony. That's why we have a Bible. I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord. Do I fear? So in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Lord, revive all your wondrous works in the past. Do all of them again. And then if you read through verses 3 through 15, you see that he just lists all the ways God has saved his people before. The descriptions recount God's acts and saving Israel from Egypt and bringing them into the promised land. Verse 8 talks about God's wrath against the rivers and the sea. A reference to him splitting the Jordan River and splitting the Red Sea to let his people pass through. Verse 11 says that the moon and the sun stood still in their place. A reference to Joshua chapter 10 where God held the sun and the moon in place at Gibeah give his people all day to get complete victory over the Amorites. Ooh. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, Ooh. laying him there from thigh to neck. And that's what God has done to all his people's enemies. Crushed them for the sake of his anointed. Amen. That's what God has done to his people's ultimate enemy. What he promised to do in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to crush Satan's head, mm. which he did at the cross of his anointed son. Amen. Just notice here where Habakkuk's focus is now. He began the book looking at Judah's problems. Now he's looking at God's power. Amen. He began the book looking at the Chaldeans' perverseness. Mm. Now he's looking at God's protection. He began the book looking at all there was that is evil, and now he's looking at a God who is good. All right. It's not that Habakkuk is just trying to think happy thoughts or remove all the negativity from his life. That doesn't work. It's not that he has, has to escape the problems of life by creating an alternate reality. No, he faces the problems of life by focusing on the ultimate reality, on God and his plans for his people. Amen. You see, I think we can become so sorrowful by the circumstances around us that we forget to look up at the God who is above us. We forget to look back at the God who has fought for us. We forget that, that is the same God who is still with us Amen. so that we can face anything with him. 
We can suffer anything as long as we have him. Amen. Which is how Habakkuk closes his book. Well, look there, verse 17. Habakkuk says, though the, the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the, the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Habakkuk's hope and his joy are bound up in God. Take away the produce, I rejoice in the Lord. Take away the flocks, I rejoice in the Lord. You can take away everything which would happen as the Babylonians would carry off Judah and all their stuff into exile. You can take away everything, but as the old folks used to say, you cannot steal my joy. All right. Because my joy is in God. Amen. In the God of my salvation. And you cannot take him away. And he will not let anybody or anything take us away from him. Amen. Isn't that what we read earlier in Romans chapter 8? What shall separate us from the love of God? Amen. Nothing shall be able to separate us Amen. from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We've seen the mood of this prophet swing from drudgery to joy. But it has nothing to do with a change in circumstances or predicaments, but a change in his perception of God. A maturing to see God's hand at work, even in hard things, in the process of shaping and saving his people. I wonder if that's instructive for you this morning. What's the hard thing in your life? You've been crying out to the Lord, how long shall I cry to you for help? And you won't say. Why do you keep looking on idly at this hard situation? What is that for you? Is it a hard marriage that has you here? Lord, why would you give me him or her? They only seemingly bring me misery. Is it a rebellious child that has you crying out to the Lord with tears and no relief? Is it a violent and dangerous workplace which some of you experience as teachers? Is it just life every day in a fallen world where one horror seems to follow another? What if nothing on the surface seemingly changed? What if things seem to actually get worse. Could you still have hope in, trust in, joy in the Lord? Could you still praise him in the midst of pain? I pray this book teaches us that we can. Teaches us that God is good and is working everything out for our good. And sometimes that good is growing our understanding and trust in him, even through hardships. As with the prophet here, God is in the process of transforming us, and we must trust him always. Amen. We must learn to trust the Lord's purposes, not our perceptions. He is always at work judging the wicked, saving the righteous and bringing glory to his name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use your word by your spirit to open up eyes to see spiritual realities, to see behind the hardship currently, to see behind the evil, to see your hand at work. Lord, we pray that we would fall upon the hands of a good and faithful God. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you have Chosen not to judge us, but to judge Christ in our place. We pray that we will praise him for who he is and what he's done for us. And that through him and in him, Lord, we might live as people who give you praise even through the hardest trials. 
knowing that you are for us, not against us. Only that if you would not spare your own son, Jesus, for us, will give him up for us all. How will you not also with him? In all things, through all things, give us all things we need to endure. Help your people, we pray. In Jesus' name. Jesus, amen. 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 amen.